We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 3, please. I try to do a uh, reading of this on my own a few times to make sure I present it with as much respect and preparation as I can. And there's a lot of names here. I almost called it sick today. There's going to be a little bit of character building here for me. So, all right, Nehemiah chapter 3. Then... Uh, Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hanel. Next, Elishab, the men of Jericho, built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Also, the sons of Hasana built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Merishazebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites, made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of uh, Besodiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Melitiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also, next to him, Hananiah, one of the uh, perfumers, made repairs, and they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumph, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Habeshna, um, made repairs. Melchanijah, son of Harim, and Heshab, the son of Pehath, Moab, repaired another section as well as the tower of the ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Heloish, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. 
repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Mokaija, son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Shalun, the son of Kol Hose, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and its bars, repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Beth-Zur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David, to the man-made pool, and as far as the house of the mighty. After him, the Levites, under Rehum, son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hash Abijah, leader of half the district of Kailah, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren, under Baviah, the son of Haned, leader of half the district of Keliah, made repairs. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mitzpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory of the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zebiah, carefully repaired the other sections from the buttress to the door of the house of Elishab, the high priest. And after him, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Elishab to the end of the house of Elishab. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hushab made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, uh, Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Benui, the son of Haned, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Halal, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress. And on the tower, which projects from the king's upper house, that was by the court of the prison. After him, Pediah, the son of Parash, made repairs. Moreover, the Nethanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites made repaired another section next to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond uh, the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shalimah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zelaph, made, re made repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of Nethanim, 
and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate and as far as the upper room of the corner and between the upper room at the corner as far as the sheep gate the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Very good reading. <laughs> Thank you. I'll make a couple of comments about that uh, section and, and the reading of it. Very long chapter there. Um, for hopefully your edification. Yes. Okay, so they were making repairs to the wall of Jerusalem. And so each person had a section that they were working on as he was reading, and some of them then occasionally they would come to one of the gates. There were a number of gates around the whole city, and they would hang the gates that they built uh, with the bars and the doors and hinges, I guess, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, so they were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was concerned from chapter 1 and 2 that the, the walls of the city were broken down. It says in chapter 1, verse number 3, uh, the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And so he mourned and wept for many days and fasted and prayed and eventually got up the courage to ask the king, hey, can I go there and, and fix this problem? And so, yes. Well, yes. So this is in the exilic period and it's one of the phases of the return of the people of Israel. So in Ezra and Nehemiah, you have... I think three returns listed there in the text. Uh, the people came back in waves. Let me back up. Remember in Jeremiah, the Lord prophesied 70 years of desolation to Jerusalem because they didn't obey God's commands. They were idolatrous. Uh, they didn't keep the, um, the years of Sabbath for the land. So God said, the land will have its Sabbaths. It'll just have them all in a row while you're deported. And uh, God was keeping his promise because he said in Deuteronomy, like chapter 28, I think it is, the blessings and the cursings. If you disobey, I'm going to send you off this land. And so he did. So he sent them away. And then during that period of time, Daniel the prophet was there. And he was reading in the book in uh, chapter number 9 and uh, Daniel and understood by the things that he read there in Jeremiah that 70 years were almost finished for the desolation of Jerusalem. And so he began to pray, and God then arranged uh, under Cyrus to uh, send people back. Uh, we see that like at the end of Second Chronicles, the proclamation of Cyrus in the first year, Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, God stirred him up to make a proclamation that uh, the Lord of, of heaven has given to him. He's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and... Uh, May the Lord his God be with him and let him, that is the people who want to go up, let him go up and do that. So Ezra goes up. Uh, there's two phases of return there. Nehemiah goes up. They build the temple. Um, remember in the book of, I'm tying the Old Testament together here a little for you. Remember the book of Haggai? In Haggai where uh, they said, oh, it's not time for us to build the temple. You know, they build their, their paneled houses and get all their stuff in order, but Haggai says, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, it's, time for you to, it's time actually for you to build a temple. And they began to raise up the temple there with, uh, with Haggai prophesying and, uh, and the other fellows there that were leaders. Um, and then later on, Nehemiah comes, and they, they rebuild the wall uh, of the city and face a lot of opposition because when you build a wall for a city in that time period, that means you're kind of standing up you know, yourself 
on your own hind legs. You're not going to be just subject to anybody that comes through and wants to uh, destroy you or fight against you. You have some protection. Uh, walls today don't mean the same thing because of the different military tools and strategies that we have, but uh, indeed uh, that was the case. So th- what happened to destroy the wall was ultimately the Babylonians, Joyce, had uh, come in five Well, they'd come in 605 B.C. and took Daniel, and then 597, and also then 587, Nebuchadnezzar got sick and tired of the rebellion of the Jewish people, and he just flattened the city, destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls, and, uh, you know, that's what what the people get for being uh, stiff-necked and stubborn. So... um, Two things that this made me think of, I was sharing with Drew earlier. We uh, didn't count the exact number of days since we purchased a home for our second parsonage and the assistant uh, pastor, but uh, we had somewhere around 52 days, just like they had to, uh, to build. And uh, it's a big project, but God is enabling us to do that. If anybody else wants to volunteer, I'm sure we can find some things. We've got some cleaning that needs to be done in some closets. We've got uh, window cleaning that needs to be done. We've got kitchen cleaning that needs to be done. We've got a lot of construction still that's, that's happening. Uh, I can give you more details about that if you're interested afterwards. That's not our point here, but um, when people, many people put their hands to the work, it's encouraging by the end of the day. You can see the progress that's been made uh, when you have uh, all kinds of people skilled in different areas or just laborers to, uh, to do the labor. We had that one Saturday where we cleared out all the trash. It felt good. <laughs> it had to go. It just had to go. It was bad, dirty stuff. and so. Um, but I think you'll be pleased when you see the final result. It's starting to come together now and looking like, hey, this is not just a, a dirty construction site. This is a, uh, a house coming along here. So we've got a lot of flooring in the dining room, and the hallway to kitchen is next, and uh, so you'll, you'll like it. But uh, that's what God's allowing us to do. So we are putting our hand to some physical labor to uh, build something for the Lord and for the use of His people. And uh, we look forward to welcoming everybody to the home later this uh, summer and have a dedication service for it. As far as uh, pronouncing these words, uh, it's interesting. I had a a teacher who would uh, use uh, the the word that he he would say in class is, you need to learn the right pronunciation of these words. You get the point? And I don't know if he did it on purpose or not, but he just always used the word pronunciation. <laughs> and it's pronunciation, but uh, I didn't say anything. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, so it's interesting. When you're reading these, uh, you know, usually the joke is if you just read them fast enough and sound like you know what you're talking about, nobody will question you because they don't know how to say it either. <laughs> but... Uh, let me give you a couple of thoughts about that. For, first of all, if you are interested in learning how to read Hebrew words better, right now, tentatively, it looks like I'm going to be teaching a Hebrew 1 class starting in the fall. So you'd learn the Hebrew alphabet in the first class. You'd learn how to pronounce the letters. Uh, you'd learn the correct pronunciation of the words and uh, the vowels, all 17 vowel forms, letters, sounds that there are. Yes, and uh, it's interesting because it re- you have to rewire your brain. So you know how you're used to reading, uh, let's say from your perspective, you're reading you know, from your left to right. Well, it's, it's the other direction. 
You're reading the other direction in Hebrew. So this, this, this is the front of the Hebrew Bible, and then you read it you know, going that way. So, um, so that's tentatively what looks like will happen. I'm not sure how, how big the class will be. I suspect it might be a little smaller than the Greek class, but uh, we'll see. Um, for example, look at uh, Nehemiah 3, verse number, where was this name? 25, look at 25. Uh, so in 25, you see the, the first couple names there. Palal is how I would say that, although I don't have the Hebrew in front of me, so I'm not sure exactly how the vowel points look uh, to be able to pronounce that exactly correctly. But Palal, the son of Uzai, Uzai. And that reminded me of the uh, city in Joshua chapter 7. Do you remember Joshua chapter 7? Joshua and the gang, I'll say, had defeated Jericho. Somebody had stolen something from Jericho, good old Achan, remember? And the next thing is they went up to a city, and the city has a very short name with two vowels. A-I is the spelling of it. And we would say it oftentimes, sorry, A-I. But actually, most people that I know in terms of Hebrew say it, I, just I. Now, how could you remember that? Well, let's think about the word that describes this center passageway between the chairs here. It is an aisle, A-I-S-L-E, right? Aisle, I. It's a, what's that? That's called a diphthong. That's two vowels that together make one sound, okay? So that's the thing we would learn in Greek class and also in, and we talk about it in the Hebrew class when we learn the elementary Hebrew alphabet and pronunciation. So it's, I would say, Uzai, without any further you know, vowel markings or anything like that. In fact, some of your older Bibles, the King James Bibles, will have a pronunciation guides in them. They'll have the little, you know, the lines for long vowels and maybe the, the, the uh, two dots. What are those two dots called? Diuresis and uh, umlauts and things like that to help you pronounce it. But if you don't know what those symbols mean because you haven't been in an English class in school that teaches you what all those symbols mean, then you're in trouble, right? So in, in my school, like we certainly learned about short vowels and long vowels with the, the straight line over the top, but not really much else. And then when we took Spanish, we learned, of course, the acute accent, you know, with the stress on the syllable. Um, in... Uh, in uh, Greek, there are several accents as well, but they probably weren't um, accents of stress, but more of tone. But we m- mimic that by uh, stressing the syllables in the Greek words that we say when we use this kind of standard Greek student pronunciation of, of the words. Yes? When two vowels... Go walking, the first one does the talking? Mm, no, I don't remember using that. <laughs> seat. It's not seat. Yeah, it's not seat. That's it. Yeah, that's good. Well, that's an interesting question that for those of you that can't hear, they're just having a little 
uh, back and forth about how you should pronounce a word versus how it is pronounced. And one of the lessons that I teach and say over and over again to our Greek students is uh, we're not trying to, um, to, to give you a set of rules to live by, but a set of patterns that are used and a description of how the language was used. It's, in, uh, it's what we call a descriptive approach to the language as opposed to what's called a prescriptive approach. A prescriptive approach would be, these are the rules, you must live by them. And if, it's, if, it's, uh, if the rule is when two vowels go walking, the first one does the talking, then that's every single time. And if it's not that, then it's an error. Well, in English, nothing's an error almost because everything's irregular. English is a very irregular language, and we don't notice it because we grew up with it. But fortunately, some languages have follow more rigid patterns than others. But still, there are exceptions to... Uh, those rules, whenever we do the parsing patterns, and I point out to the students, you know, it all looks the same as the patterns we've learned before, except, and except, and they're like, oh, the groans come out because you, you got to memorize more, you know, to remember the different situations. So, uh, so you have that uh, I um, combination of vowels that makes the one sound, instead of saying it A-I, you would say I. Um, there was another name or two well, like uh, I just happened upon this one in chapter 323. It says, after him, Benjamin and Hashub. Now, we would say Hashub with a hard B, but it might be more like this, Hashub, with more of a V sound, a soft B, made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, you see that? The son of Maasiah, so the two A's, we do uh, say them separately, the son of Ananiah made repairs by his house. So, again, I'd have to see how the Hebrew is written to be able to say it more properly, but uh, that would be a good pronunciation from the English, uh, all of those. And one of, the, one of the other things we learn in probably the second or third week of Greek, and I can't remember when it is in Hebrew, but it's right there in the beginning, is how to divide a word into syllables. If you don't know how to divide a word into syllables, then how are you going to, to say it? It becomes a big jumble of letters, and it's almost like uh, it's a good lesson for a young person to learn that you need to divide up a big problem into smaller problems. You've got a big word like this. Well, put the slashes in there for this, divide the syllables, and then just say the syllables, sound it out one syllable at a time, and then you don't have to do the whole thing all at once and try to formulate it in your mind. Just say it out. And once you do that, then for me, with the, you know, the phonics method, it kind of, you kind of make sense of the word, and then all of a sudden, okay, I, yeah, I've heard that word before, you know, and you say it more naturally. So um, what other example was I looking at earlier? There were, of course, many of them. Um, yeah, uh, Baruch. You're going to have a, the CH sound is trying to reproduce in the Hebrew of a kind of a guttural sound in the back of your throat, Baruch. It's, it's almost like an X back there, but it's hard to say. Um, look at verse 18. After their brethren under Bavai, there's the AI again, the son of Henadad. See that? Henadad leader of the other half of the district of Kela made repairs. And so, 
verse 14, Malchijah. Or we might say, just put the CH as a K sound, Malchijah. We kind of cheat a little bit because we don't have a lot of guttural sounds, but guttural meaning in the back of the throat. It's harder for us because we don't grow up with that. But you practice it a little bit and you'll be able to do it. Some languages have a lot of that sort of thing, and we just aren't accustomed to it. Uh, Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the leader of the district of Beth. Of course, we know Beth. It actually comes from the Hebrew word bait, bait house, bait hakerem, uh, and repaired the refuse, not refuse, but refuse gate. Uh, what do you think the refuse gate was? That's probably the way to the dump, <laughs> you know, out to put the trash out. Uh, and he built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Shalon, the son of Kol Hoseh, leader of the district of Mizpah. So anyway, I'm not saying any of that, Drew, to criticize your pronunciation. No, you did a fine job, but just to, uh, what's that? Yeah, he did a very good job. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Drew is, yeah. Drew is commenting for those that couldn't hear that that God's God has felt this important enough to record it in Holy Scripture uh, that these people did this work and gave themselves and their efforts to uh, this project, which is important for the for the city. And I feel the same way about the work that we do here. You might feel like you know polishing the floors or you know cleaning out old carpet from a house or something like that is like, what is this? But if you think about the, the souls that can be ministered to on that new carpet or food that can be cooked to host hospita- hospitality for people in that home, in that new kitchen, it, you, uh, you can get a different vision of It's a big thing that's all interconnected. It's not disconnected uh, from, from each other. So um, it seems like I was going to add something else to that. Uh, yeah, and to have your name memorialized in Scripture, that's something. <laughs> that's really something. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I mean, think of some different folks with different uh, uh, jobs, di- different skills, different um, uh, training did this work. Now, there were some who, that one section that Drew read here, that uh, the, the nobles didn't do the work. You know, <laughs> they're too important for that. They couldn't get their hands dirty. But then, did you notice the perfumer? Now, the perfumer doesn't do rocks and mortar and, and, and brickwork and concrete. You know, he's, he's doing fine little, you know, things in mortars and pestles and all that stuff. But he got out there and he was doing the work. And, uh, and that's, oh, yeah, the young women, too, helping out with it. Well, it's, you know, it's, and it took, they were, most of them were there, weren't they? They just needed the, the leadership, to the oomph to get going and say, hey, we can do this. And less than two months later, they had it done. Amazing. So, well, any other questions on that or anything else? I had a question. Uh, it seems like I was going to ask you a couple of questions. Where have you been reading in your Bible lately? Somebody want to? Somebody's reading in Judges. For Samuel, a lot of Old Testament going on. What's that? Ruth. Okay, three Old Testament. We got to get a New Testament in here. Come on, anybody? 
Joyce, where have you been reading? I know you've been reading your scriptures. She's figuring where she's been at, Luke, yeah. Oh, new and old together, right, yeah. Well, many of us are a little bit behind where we wanted to be at this time of the year, but don't give up. You got Deuteronomy done. Yes, Josh. Isaiah and Ephesians. Okay, very good. Anybody else? Psalms on Saturdays. I know which one it is now, yep. <laughs> okay. That's good. So those of you that are online viewing, I cannot ask you, but, well, I can ask you, actually. I can't hear you answer, but you be thinking of the answer in your head. And if the answer is, Pastor, I'm not reading anywhere consistently, then I have one simple word for you. (laughs) Take up and read. Tole lege. Take up the book and read, and don't give up, and you will be benefited thereby. So, Daniel, where are you reading? That's right. He's serious. We asked him that the other morning, and he said he's reading in Daniel. I was like, well, that's convenient. (laughs) You don't have to think too hard about where you open your Bible. Yeah, very good. Okay, well, I wanted to ask that question just as an encouragement. We are almost to the halfway point of the year, and you don't want to give up your reading schedule that you started on January 1st just yet. You've got another six, almost seven months to go. On time. Very good. Let's keep that up. Anybody doing any scripture memory? That is fallen by the, on hard times in my walk, scripture memory. I noticed one of our brothers was reading along with his lips speaking as one of us was reading earlier today, knowing the passage in Romans 12, I think it was. Anybody? Scripture memory? Ah, that's good. That is good. No, I'm just asking if you're working on Scripture memory at all. Yeah. I was thinking of that, Brother James, when you were up here reading, because I think years ago you got up here and you like recited some chapter in James or something like that. That is, uh, that is, uh, that takes boldness right there. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. It's in there somewhere. Got to get it out somehow. The most prolific scripture memory person in the history of our church, anybody? You know the name? You know who I'm talking about? You know who I'm talking about. It was a woman who would remember scripture like you wouldn't believe. Oh, no, Mrs. B? I don't know if Mrs. B did. I don't remember now. She's been with the Lord a long time. How about Vicki Witten? <laughs> she could quote like books, like the book of Revelation. Yeah, well, that's, that is, uh, that's a gift. 
that is quite a gift to be able to do that. Uh, I know it takes work too, but that's a memory. So anything else? Well, one of the questions that I had uh, received, actually I had written a little bit about this and I just beefed it up when I received this question uh, from actually one of our young people. And it had to do with the timing of the judgment of believers. And uh, so we, we don't have a ton of time left this evening, but let me just mention that in the scriptures, uh, people who don't study the Bible, let me start it this way, people who don't study the Bible very carefully uh, just have this kind of generic idea of what is going to happen in the future. Uh, we're going to die, we're all going to stand before God, we're going to hear His judgment, and we're going to find out whether we made it or not. That's what's called the general resurrection and judgment view. I remember that being, uh, how can I say, forcefully kind of pointed out at a funeral for a brother here in the church. I didn't do the funeral, wasn't involved, but I went to it. And uh, he had had some other pastor out in, uh, out in uh, Chelsea, I think, um, give the funeral. And it wasn't in accordance with uh, that brother's beliefs, <laughs> but... Uh, the general resurrection view is incorrect. It's incorrect. The Bible uh, is extraordinarily clear that there is not a general one-time only resurrection. In Revelation chapter 20, you'll remember that there is that period of a thousand years that's mentioned, and it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not live again until when? After the thousand years were finished. I do not know, for the life of me, I don't want to be too harsh and, and critical, but for those people who say that there's a general resurrection, who ignore or, or, or just eliminate that verse from their Bible, I don't know how they can do that. God meant what he said and said what he meant. It's very plain. And we just take it as it, as it stands, that there are at least two resurrections separated by a thousand years. And there are actually more uh, resurrections and judgments than that. I mean, if you think about it, so when do, when do Christians like Jim and Joan who passed away, when, do they, when are they resurrected? At what great event in church history? Second coming, what part of the second coming? The rapture, 1 Thessalonians, okay? We're caught up together with them and, and meet the Lord in the air, so we're ever with the Lord. That is at the end of this age, before the tribulation. And so what about the Old Testament saints? What about Old Testament saints, non, not non-believers? And, you know, they weren't believers in Christ per, specifically, per se. When, were they re, when are they going to be resurrected? What about the tribulation saints, people who the Antichrist kills? When are they going to be resurrected? Well, evidently, they're going to be resurrected just before the beginning of the millennial kingdom because the Bible talks about those who are slain for their testimony of Christ living and reigning with Christ in Revelation 20 in that millennial kingdom. So that means that they must be resurrected sometime. Well, they have to be resurrected after they die, right? And if they die in the tribulation, that's after saints like Jim and Joan who will be raised at the rapture. So there's got to be at least two resurrections so far. When do the Old Testament saints uh, get their resurrection. Well, they get their resurrection. If we're to believe what the Old Testament says, that the, uh, like King David, for example, will be present in the millennial kingdom, he's got to be resurrected at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, doesn't he? 
just by you know good and logical reasoning from the text of scripture that we see. So we they're they're resurrected somewhere in there, maybe at the same time as the tribulation saints. And then what about somebody who might happen to die during the millennial kingdom? Because it does indicate there will be some death present during that time. There'll be people who live to exceedingly long ages then, just like they did back in in the early book of uh, chapters of Genesis. So they must be resurrected, well, before the beginning of the eternal state, so sometime at the end of the millennial kingdom, because they're going to... If they're unbelievers, which some in the millennial kingdom will be, they will be risen. And Revelation 20, verse 11 says that they will stand before God, small and great, and they will be judged before him at his great white throne judgment. So we have all of those different resurrections, those different people groups that uh, the scriptures mention, and it's clear that there are different times of resurrection. In fact, it, it tells us that almost like super plainly in uh, 1 Corinthians. Go back over there to 1 Corinthians, and I'm just kind of talking around the problem or the question that I was given, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. Let's see if I can uh, find this. Um, Yes, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so as in Adam all die, even so, here in the same way, in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own, listen to this, order. This is speaking of ranks of, it's like a military term, like you see one, one you know, brigade, and then you see another brigade after it, and another one in a big marching uh, formation. It says, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that's the first one, afterward those who are Christ that is coming, so that'd be like Christians, then comes the end. And I think there's another resurrection there when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father and puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. So the scripture there lists a three, an order of three things, three resurrections. The firstfruits, of course, is Christ, then those who are his that is coming, and then and then comes the end. Yes, that would be correct at his, at his coming. So again, there's another thing. People think the, the uh, second coming is, is all one uh, general event, one, one, sorry, one, one moment in time event when the scripture has revealed to us. In the Old Testament, it looked like he's going to come once, he's going to uh, suffer and be glorified. Then in the, in the early part of the New Testament, it became clear that he's going to come once and suffer and leave and go away for a long time, and then he's going to come back a second time. So with me so far? So then that's why the second coming has become a critical point of theology for us because that's New Testament revelation. But now as the New Testament unfolds and Jesus says to the disciples, hey, if I go away, I'm going to come back and take you to myself. He tells Paul to tell the Thessalonians there's going to come a cry from heaven, a voice of an archangel, a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So as time goes on and the New Testament develops, you have further information that now says, okay, there's not just one coming with the suffering and a glory. There's one coming with suffering and a second coming with glory. And then that second coming with glory is first he's going to deal with his church, and then he's going to have a little time period of judgment focusing on the nation of Israel and the nations of the world called the tribulation. Then he's going to finish and actually come down to the earth 
and reign on in Jerusalem, from a throne in Jerusalem. Okay, he'll come down Mount of Olives and right on the earth. So uh, some people take that last segment of activity, the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming proper, and they kind of smash it all together and make it one event. And it appears to us that based on good and sound reason, again, from the text of Scripture, that there must be a distance of time between the rapture and the uh, second coming proper, where he actually comes all the way down. Comes partway down, gets the church, pause, come all the way down and rule over the kingdom in the end time. And that is to accommodate that 70th seven of Daniel. The 70th seven of Daniel is that period of seven years. Remember, Gabriel came and told Daniel, there's 70 sevens appointed for your people, Israel. And after the 69th, it says the Messiah will be cut off. And then it kind of just leaves you hanging. You're like, what happened to the last of the 70? Well, that's the tribulation. That's when the uh, abomination of desolations will happen and uh, the treaty with God's people will be broken and the temple will be defiled and a great time of Jacob's trouble, uh, the distress of God's people. Yeah, the abomination of desolation. That's a, uh, an event which is mentioned in, let's look in, uh, I have an address in my head, but I don't know if it's the right one. Let me see if it is. I wanted to say Mark, no, it's not, it's 1340, 13, 15, uh, 13, 14, Mark 13, 14. Um, the Lord is in the speaking in the Olivet Discourse here, um, and it says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Uh, that's funny because it's hard for us to understand, <laughs> but we're supposed to understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And in Jewish history, uh, in the intertestamental period, by the way, there, Daniel does prophesy about this. That is in Daniel chapter 9. Actually, let, before I make this other comment, let me go there in Daniel chapter 9. It talks about this in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And it says in Daniel chapter 9, 26, and after the 62 weeks, which by the way is after a prior period of seven weeks, so it's a total of 69 at that point, Messiah shall be cut off. That's Old Testament language, to be killed. 9.26 of Daniel. Sorry, I'm going quickly. 9.26 of Daniel. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. So this is speaking now about the destruction uh, in the, well, the tribulation, we'll just put it there. In verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's one period of seven years. But in the middle of the week, that is, the word week is a little misleading because it's, it means seven, the middle of the seven. The middle of the seven, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. 
So what is the abomination of desolation? It is the desecration of the Jewish temple and the worship there. In the intertestamental period, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, IV uh, brought in a statue of Zeus and sacrificed a swine in the Jewish altar and desecrated that. I'm not sure the year of that, but that was in the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, that 400-year period. In the Maccabees, you can read about it, First and Second Maccabees, as accurate as they might be. Um, and uh, so it's, it's really the desecration of the temple of God and the worship service that is there. Now, I don't know that there's going to be exactly a replica of that historical event there in the temple, but there will be some desecration. And let me uh, emphasize using the text of the New Testament something that is connected to this in Second Thessalonians. In Second Thessalonians, uh, it talks about this, and it says, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So some people were claiming that the day of Christ has already come. You people have missed it. You need some secret key or knowledge or whatever to get in on it, but that was not the case. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Sorry about that. Should have put it on do not disturb. Um, The son of perdition is revealed, it says. uh, And uh, it says in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Now here it is. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the man of sin or the Antichrist who, whether or not he sacrifices a pig on the altar, whatever he does that's going to desecrate the temple and its cleanliness for service. I mean, you do know that during the tribulation, because of this treaty, we believe, of peace that the Antichrist will initially broker, that the Jews will be able once again to sacrifice to God on the altar that they will rebuild in a temple in Jerusalem. That doesn't seem to be possible today because of the fact that the Temple Mount is destroyed and on top of the Temple Mount sits what? A mosque. It doesn't seem possible, does it, today for that to occur. But at some point, somehow, uh, God will permit that uh, to be moved such a way that they'll be able to offer sacrifice again on the temple, uh, in the temple, but only for the first half of that period of seven years, according to prophecy, at which time the Antichrist will come and he will desecrate the temple, cause the abomination of desolation to come to pass, And he then, however he desecrates it, will take over and he will say, I am God. Which comports with what we read about Satan and Isaiah and Ezekiel, doesn't it? When he said that I will be like the Most High. And people do this in 
in fashion like the devil uh, when you have pharaohs that fancy themselves to be gods, Caesars that demand worship, uh, people who demand utter allegiance, no questioning of me, I'm the boss, I'm in charge here, kind of leaders in the world. They are trying to put themselves up as gods or prohibit you from worshiping God as you see fit. Uh, They're following this pattern, but this guy is going to be the one who uh, makes that ultimate claim and sits in the temple and says, I am the one you worship. Well, this is the middle of the tribulation, so we are not to be here. According to our understanding of theology, we've been raptured three and a half years before this, and we'll be facing the judgment seat of Christ or however that works, which was the question I was going to get to, but I haven't gotten there yet. Um, So we will not be here. We believe that God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He uh, says in Revelation 20, uh, Revelation 20, Revelation 3, uh, 10, uh, or is it 20? Let me look. Now I've got myself all confused about the numbers. Revelation chapter 3. Um... Revelation 3, uh, 10, yeah, it is verse 10. Because you have kept my command, he writes to the church in Philadelphia, to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So it seems that he's promising these, these believers and them akin to them that they will not suffer that, that fate. Now, there are other Christians, to just full, for full disclosure, who believe that we as a church will pass through the tribulation, mainly using an argument, two arguments, I suppose. One, they don't see the distinction between the church and these saints that are in the, uh, mentioned in the tribulation, and that uh, it's not fair that the church would not have to pass through the tribulation. And I, I, I dismiss most uh, fairness arguments out of hand. I simply go with what the text of Scripture says. And, uh, and we'll leave it at that. If, if we're wrong, we're wrong, but we are taking it the best way that we can uh, understand it, which may be a minority position to some, but it is uh, a very defensible position in, uh, in the Scriptures. But in any case, the question that I originally had thought I would share with you was, when are we going to face the judgment seat of Christ? When are we going to face the judgment seat of Christ? And there's some, a little bit of confusion maybe about this or debate. It's not the most important question that there is because we know that the Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. I've said that probably 10 times in the last three weeks because of all these funerals and things we've been doing. And uh, it's an important principle, important concept, but... Uh, it, you know, so some people think, well, when you die, then the next moment, you know, you're facing your judge. I don't believe that myself because it appears to me that the scripture uh, indicates that we are judged in our bodies. So we must await resurrection for that to occur. And I see that in one particular place, especially, and that's in Revelation 20 where it says that the dead, both small and great, stand before God at the judgment. And because 1 Corinthians says all will be resurrected, 
then I say, okay, well, it must be they, they resurrect and they're standing there before God in their bodies and they're receiving their judgment. Somebody can you know, quibble about that and say, you know, I don't believe that, I believe differently, but I take it that we are resurrected and then judged. And so somebody might say, well, what then about you know, the time period between when you die and when you're resurrected? Why hasn't God judged you then? Well, I don't stress about that question because God is very patient. He hasn't judged us so far. What, what, what stops him from waiting a little while longer for, say, Jim and Joan in the intermediate heaven? Do they have to be judged immediately to enjoy fellowship with God? No, they're saved. They're born again. Their sins are forgiven. They're washed in the blood of Christ. They're justified. That's all settled already. The other thing that came up in this question that I had from one of our young people was, what about um, the idea that you can't be judged until all the fruit comes in from your labors? And uh, it was a very brilliant kind of question because, and I had I'd said something about this, I wrote a little bit more on it now. And the idea is this, if you die today and you're judged tonight or tomorrow, let's say, has all of your fruit from your life come in yet? No, it hasn't. You think about it. You witnessed to so-and-so yesterday. Today you died. They got saved tomorrow. They live a 50 years more and bear fruit that fruit partly goes to your account. You write a, a Bible, a tract, that gets passed out at your funeral or after you die, you are still bearing fruit even though you're dead. Now, that's an interesting idea. You translate the Bible. You get it to somebody else's hands. You haven't, I mean, you don't know the fruit of that yet. That's going to come later. The fruit of Adoniram Judson's ministry may still be being born to this day, right? And your fruit too. Uh, he being dead yet speaketh, Scripture says. So uh, when will that fruit end, 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 and all be completed? Well, it's maybe hard to say. I mean, we might... I'd suggest that Christians are gathered at the judgment seat of Christ during the tribulation and, and uh, when, when we're up in heaven, we've been raptured, we get judged in the, great, in the uh, Bema seat judgment down here on earth. God's doing his work with the people here and pouring out judgments. But we're being judged there and it, there still might be fruit that we're bearing during the tribulation even though we're not there. Why? Because we left somebody a Bible. We left money to somebody. We, we did something that that uh, propagated the gospel and, and had you know, fruit down the line years later. But that's not really a problem because God knows in advance what all that's going to be. Uh, so it, it makes some sense that judgment would be delayed for more fruit to come in. It's not the end of the world if you don't take that view, but it is interesting. And the instructive nature of that to me is, what does that mean for me today? That means that my life has consequence today. 
what I do today affects tomorrow, even if I'm not here tomorrow. I can affect my boys, my wife, my extended family, my church family, the ministries that we touch as a church, we touch, we do something with, and we can have fruit yet beyond that time. Um, I was thinking of our brother and sister that just passed. Nobody knows, well, almost nobody, probably four, four or five people in this church know the gift that our brother gave to the church years ago. I'm not going to say any more about it. It's not my business to repeat that. But that gift is still giving. It's amazing. The faithfulness that somebody had. And even though, you know, we say the long goodbye through Alzheimer's, they're still bearing fruit in their old age. And uh, so I encourage you to think, how can you invest your life in a way that will bear long-term fruit in the service of the great king. Because that's what we want, isn't it? Lay up for yourselves, not on earth. Goodness, on earth, it's going to burn up, it's going to rust up, it's going to mothball, it's going to everything. Disappear. But when you lay up treasures in heaven and you build into people's lives, then you have real lasting, permanent Fruit, fruit that will remain, as our Lord called it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these thoughts that uh, we came to tonight kind of by a circuitous route in terms of judgment, in terms of reward, in terms of the fruits of our labors that may last even after we pass away. I ask that you would help our focus to be upon generating that kind of labor not the just merely earthly kind of things that have a temporal value, hopefully, at least that, but something beyond that, something more important than that, something that's investing in souls and spirits of people, not just in materialism or things that are destined to be burned uh, in the end. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I kind of like that free form material. We do that sometimes in our chapels over at the Anchor Bible College as well. Uh, I I simply can't produce new messages for all those services, so I have to go, you know, with stuff or refresh things. Yeah, you can't, you can't stop hardly, you know. Well, it shows you that the Scripture is so interconnected, and if we don't know a good bit of the body of Scripture, we just, we're going to be kind of lost. You know, we want to, want to really know it so we can uh, handle it well. But, and hopefully you saw that as we were able to touch a lot of portions of Scripture tonight that are interconnected, Old Testament and New Testament. Keep up that Bible reading in both Testaments um, because you need it, and, uh, and so do I. So I've been reading in the book of Acts, as I've told you, and uh, I took a little break from that for a couple of days, and I was reading in First and Second Peter, and uh, just in English. It's so much easier to read in English <laughs> than it is to read in Greek. So uh, that gave my mind a rest and allowed me to focus a little more on the larger picture content than the grammar of each each word. So, all right, we wish you a good night. God bless you. Uh, thank you for viewing online if you're there, and we will say uh, good day to you, and God bless, and 
May he watch over you and keep you. Amen.